This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 52 is something like What philosophical lessons come out of the history of black oppression in America? And we read W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk, first chapter of that from 1903, Cornel West's A Genealogy of Modern Racism, an essay from 1982 from the book Prophesy Deliverance couple Martin Luther King documents, Letter from Birmingham Jail, and The Black Power to Find, and also Malcolm X's The Black Revolution from 1963. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allen in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. This is Lawrence Ware in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And welcome, Lawrence, or do you prefer law or the law? I prefer the law, and you should say the law every time you <laughs> talk to me. You're going to fit right in here. <laughs> law is fine. Law is fine. All right. This is on race. You've actually taught, was it a whole course or just a one-off seminar or something? I was unclear. Law. What? I begin to uh, incorporate race within an introduction to philosophy course. And then my students were like, hey, that's a good part of the class. So you should probably do something a little bit more substantial. So I fought with the university for about a year to allow them to let me teach philosophy of race. And so I've been teaching it now. This is my second semester and we will continue to have it as long as they let me teach it. They said Oklahoma State, right? Yeah, Oklahoma State University. What was the fight with the administration about? What didn't they want you to do? You know, I thought I was going to have a difficult time with the philosophy department, but they were really open to it. The university had real questions about the legitimacy of a philosophical examination of race, which is an issue that philosophy in general has, really. But I guess they were more concerned that I was going to go too radical and too much Black Panther party or something like that. I had to reassure them that I was going to, you know, be nice. And at the end, we would hold hands and sing Kumbaya. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was that was the, the main concern that they had. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting that you got that from the regular administration, not from the philosophy department. I hear a lot of sort of alleged conspiracies about philosophy departments. And at least my experience at Texas was that there's no conspiracy possible because they can't agree about anything. That is exactly like they, right. <laughs> it's like your whole branch of philosophy I dismissed as not being philosophical. No, your whole branch, like, that's normal. So it's not going to be like a special thing against philosophy and race yeah, issues. It's just against all continental philosophy and all, anal, you know. Yeah, philosophy of mind is just psychology. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. They were very open-minded. You know, they were very interested in philosophy of race. However, the issue with the department is just how can we get students interested in the course? Will they enroll? And so far, I've been turning students away. I mean, I have around a 50-person waiting list every single semester. So, you know, wow. the issues that we thought that we would have, we end up not having them. So it works out well. All right. Well, I had uh, found Lob through Facebook that you had friended me. In fact, you were one of the people that friended me, but did not send any kind of message. So I just let the message sit there. Like, I don't know who this person is. So if people friend me, just mention the pot, say something. But I eventually looked at your page and saw that you were a philosophy guy. It's, okay. All right. He's not a stalker or something. Maybe I'm, I'm a philosophical stalker. I'm, I'm the new breed. <laughs> and I was glad that I did because then I saw that you had a bunch of posts on 
Cornell West, right. and that's what made me ask you about this. We came up with the idea of doing this after we did the feminism one last fall right. and right. thought, ah, we should see what there is in race. And so finding somebody who knew something about it and also, to be frank, you know, a bunch of white guys talking about this, <laughs> there's something that lacks legitimacy there. <laughs> I'm now beginning to feel like the token black philosopher, but no. I'll do that. I'll be that guy. That's what I've been in every department. I said that's, that, that's that you that are guy. actually qualified and you teach this, but not that, oh, I know a black guy. Let me, get, let me, that is not, that is not the issue. Yeah, because your best friend is black. Your best friend is black. So absolutely. Well, I have to say this, guys. I come to the podcast directly from work where uh, I was talking to one of my colleagues was African-American. I was telling him about the podcast and he said, and the makeup of the guys who do the podcast, what is that exactly? And I was like, I know, I know we're four white guys. That's uh, <laughs> it was the first thing that came to his mind when he asked uh, whether I was legitimate that I would have a conversation about this topic. So right. it's definitely out there. Yes. There's sort of a meta issue. Like, are we even allowed to talk about this? Like, it's, you don't understand our oppression, so you should not be having a discussion about this at all. Or even when I was trying to phrase, I was sending out an email to you guys about a summary of the topic. And like, it seemed hard to even put it in words that could not possibly be interpreted as somehow racist. <laughs> like, if you say there's the problem of race, well, what's the problem with my race? Well, you know, what... <laughs> So that even just defining well, to me, the question. Yeah, to me, it's a strange idea that because you're white, you can't talk about race. I mean, that's to make me sound like the conservative usually I'm labeled as the knee-jerk liberal. But I think that's strange. It'd be like saying, you know, suppose you were studying the Industrial Revolution and someone said to you, you, you can't talk about that. You weren't. It doesn't make any because sense. Because you're a farmer. No, because you, you <laughs> didn't live during that time and you didn't experience it. Well, that's not really the – to have a conversation about something doesn't necessitate – Having lived that experience. Living that experience. Absolutely. And then part of the point of having a conversation is to have conversations about things that you haven't directly experienced, right? That's the well, I mean, there is a kind of deep philosophical issue there about how we can get access to each other's experience, right? I mean, if you wholly mm -hmm. identify your experience as being uncommunicable in a fundamental way, then that becomes a problem for having conversations. So you, it seems like... We ought to be able to have conversations about all of these things because that's what conversation's about. And so there's got to be a way to give access to each other about it. Yeah, I think it's a very pernicious idea, the idea that we can't, that there are some classes of human beings with whom we can't identify. No, I agree. Somewhere in here, I was going to bring up the South Park episode that I was describing to Seth at some point, mm -hmm. which was there's a whole plot in it about uh, this guy's trying to show his black friend that he understands, you know, I understand what you're going through. I understand what you're sensitive about. And the guy's like, no, no, you don't get it. And finally, the guy gives up and says, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. And so his black friend says, now you get it. Like that was the whole thing. <laughs> the white guys just need to recognize that they don't get it, that there's a realm closed off to them. And that's as far as they can go. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why I think so many people who deal with philosophy of race and, and maybe not even directly, but just people who are trying to give people access to that experience, they do it through literature. They do it through a way wherein you can look through the eye. So I'm thinking of Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man, which I would argue is mm -hmm. an existential text. You read this text and you begin to see that this guy who is nameless, his experience is unique to his invisibility. And so you begin to realize, OK, this is what it feels like to be invisible. This is what it feels like to have no name. This is what it feels like to live this experience wherein you are on the one hand an American, but at the same time you are an African-American and you feel this tension within yourself that W.B. Du Bois calls double consciousness. 
And so I, I think part of the reason why so many people, you know, Richard Wright with Native Son, James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, why so many times instead of tackling the subject matter directly through philosophy or through theory, they instead take you on a journey, if you will, so that you can see what it feels like as opposed to looking at it from the outside and trying to imagine what that feels like. That presentation that sort of brings up the question for me. Studying civil rights, studying this stuff is great for a humanities education, certainly. Mm -hmm. Like, it really sucked to live back in slave times. Or reading Richard Wright, it sucked to live in a time where prejudice was rampant. And you can even look at different situations now. So from a humanities perspective, sure. But then the question is, like, well, how is that philosophical? Where does the philosophy come in? I've sort of compared this to learning about the Holocaust. Like, if you've never seen a bunch of Holocaust movies or something, like, you're missing part of the liberal education. You're missing some of what you need to be human to realize that that kind of bad stuff happens. But to go further and, like, actually draw something philosophical from that is is separate. That's a valid question. But, you know, I think... There's a great deal. I was listening to a lecture from Charles W. Mills, who's up in Northwestern. He was once at OU, and and so I met him, and he was really influential in me going into philosophy. And he was talking about, well, why is race something that is philosophically interesting? One of the things that he pointed out was that when you look at foundational texts for philosophy, one of the things that comes up is, of course, the Republic. And one of the major questions within the Republic is the question of justice. Now, when you take that question of justice and you begin to examine all of the implications of where injustice is relevant, then you begin to see areas where racial justice is important. And you begin to see that perhaps when it comes to racial justice, you begin to realize that particularly in after modernity, racial justice affected the majority of the world population. And then even further, very real crimes resulted because of racial issues as, as relates to justice. And so it requires of us to take a step back and to examine, well, where do these ideas about race come from? Where do they come from, from the culture? Where do they come from, from science? Also within the realms of theology, where do we get these ideas of race? And then from there, well, what are the implications of these ideas once we know kind of where they come from? And so those were some of the issues that he was dealing with. But, you know, these are questions that feminism were forced to deal with. Why should we be concerned about feminism? Why should we be concerned about gay issues? Every new discipline always has this level of tension of should we get involved in this? You know, is this Mm -hmm. philosophical enough? Is it or is it not? And so George Yancey would say something along the lines of, well, every time you look at philosophy, you have these people who are kind of gatekeepers who will say that is not philosophical. Right. And they uphold what he says is the norms of philosophy. And it requires people to really push through these norms and say, no, we are relevant. What we have to say is significant. And so you must examine us. And then I think that existentialism really provides even more fodder for the fire, wherein existentialism really deals with some of these issues of what does it mean to be black? What does it mean? Who is black? Is Barack Obama black? Right. Those real Mm -hmm. genuine questions, you know, of existential origin, I think, kind of relate to this. So it's, it's a lot of stuff. It's not clearly defined yet, I wouldn't say, but it's getting there. We just need more work behind it, I would say. Yeah. Speaking of the existentialism, I know one of the readings that you had first come up with for a potential thing to do for this was uh, some Franz Fanon, who is a French existentialist, who is a psychoanalyst, and he read a lot of Sartre. To some extent, all breeds of existentialism are just these overdramatic, technical language-laced descriptions (laughs) of experience. And so I thought that was, you know, you you stare at me and the blackness is tattooed upon my skin and I, you know you see my ontology my essence is before my existence because you consider me just the essence of blackness and you don't see myself you know so it does give a very vivid way of uh, of uh, putting it 
You know, you, you know, you just use the name Franz Fanon. Is that name dropping? I will follow up on it. All right. It is technically. It, especially since it wasn't on our reading list, Mark. <laughs> I think George Yancey might have been a name drop there. Oh, man, you got me. You got me. <laughs> These will all, hey, I've been alerted to the fact that a lot of listeners don't look at the blog, which is ridiculous because all these things will be, I'll, I'll have a, a post on each of these guys in the blog. I have a big stack of books I got out this time and I want to at least give a two line review or something of them. Okay, cool. I'm trying to get posts up announcing the topics before we actually do the discussions now right? so that people have a chance to sort of have input. I'm always hopeful that people have sort of provocative questions that we can maybe incorporate. And there's a little bit of that, but more it was like, did you look at these 12 other sources? Yeah, like, yeah. The discussion's in two days. No. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, I, I, I did want to address that real quickly because I saw a lot of people were like, yo, you should really do this or you should really do that. The reason why I think it's important for us to do these particular texts is because these kind of serve the foundation for all of the other stuff that comes later on. And so it's very mm -hmm. important for us to deal with the foundation. So, for example, when you look at W.B. Du Bois, you know, his, his of our spiritual strivings came from 1905. And so that really lays the foundation for much of what happens later on for black mm -hmm. existentialism. So these are really the foundational texts. I mean, we could deal with a lot of different guys who are writing now and gals who are writing now, Bell Hooks and George Yancey and Frank, you know, we could deal with a lot of different stuff, but I, I think it's important to kind of deal with the foundational text that everyone kind of goes back to and says, okay, this is central to the development of some kind of philosophy of race. That's the reason why I picked these. Yeah. And these are, yeah. No, I was excited about the Du Bois. I'd never had to read him before. Maybe part of it, I, I watched a series of lectures, mm -hmm. which I will post to from Stanford on this by, he's one of the guys who edited MLK's papers. Okay, right. And he really talked up Du Bois as being like the preeminent intellectual of his time. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. He, wonderful, wonderful writer. Yeah. He was. He was a wonderful, he was a phenomenal guy. He was the first black guy to graduate from Harvard. But here's an interesting story. One day, Du Bois goes in to William James and says, William James, I want to major in philosophy. William James says to him, no, there is no room for black people within this discipline. Oh. You should major in something that has a little bit more practical implications. And so he decides to go into a different realm. So he was initially interested in philosophy. That's the reason why a lot of his writings have this philosophical feel to them. He was initially mm -hmm. interested in philosophy, but William James told him not to major in it. Mm. I had not read that little bit. I read that he took classes with mm -hmm. him and with Santayana. Santayana and uh, so he's definitely plugged into this history that we're already covering. Mm -hmm. We still read Du Bois at St. John's, right? Yep. Du yeah. Bois is in the senior year. Good. And I saw most of that book, The Souls of Black Folk, is history. I mean, he was a, so Du Bois is a history yeah. guy, and yeah. it's sort of history and cultural commentary. Like, here's what it was like to teach at an all-black small schoolhouse in the rural South right. when he did that. Right. And here's how crummy it is for blacks now working in the cotton mills and living in conditions that are very similar to what they lived in uh, – in slavery times, but they're sort of used to that. And that's how things are set up. And that's his area of expertise is he wrote a very famous book on the reconstruction post-Civil War. Right. But he was a history major. One of the things that he did that was significant was, of course, I think the major philosophical contribution from Du Bois would definitely be this idea of double consciousness. I think without a doubt, that is the major philosophical contribution because... Yeah. What he begins to examine is the power of white stereotypes on black life and thought. And so you have a really cool movie by Spike Lee called uh, School Days. Anyway, there is this musical selection in, in School Days entitled Good and Bad Hair, 
where yes, there is. It's, it's absolutely it's phenomenal. Anybody who's who's not seen that, you need to stop what you're doing, pause this, and go watch this, and then come back and listen to the rest of us. But honestly, it's a phenomenal little little litany. And, and uh, Chris Rock did this uh, documentary about good and bad hair. Also, where do we get mm-hmm. these ideas of good hair? Well, good hair comes from the white standards of hair. Right. And so Du Bois is very concerned about black people being told that we have the wrong lips, the wrong hips, the wrong skin pigmentation, the wrong texture of hair. And he's very concerned about the power that these stereotypes hold over the black psyche. And so you'll see very frequently, you know, a preoccupation in the 1920s and the 30s and the 40s with light skin. You know, and these are all an internalization of white standards of beauty that black people now hold up against one another. And Du Bois is very concerned about this. And so he comes up with this idea of double consciousness to articulate what he sees happening here. And so that begins the discussion, I guess, over the years about black existentialism and what does it feel to be black? And where do we get these ideas of what's good and what's bad, particularly within the black experience? And Du Bois wants to say that it comes from, again, from this double consciousness. I have a quote here I can read about his double consciousness. This is uh, about three paragraphs into the essay. After the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, the sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape a world that looks in on amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, mm-hmm. an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. Oh, absolutely. So as I was reading through this, I was trying to figure out both what he meant by double consciousness, but also balance that with the way he talks about it even here. It's an existential condition but he talks of it as being a kind of affliction mm-hmm. rather than something, for lack of a better term, that's bad or and oppressive, something to be overcome, essentially. Absolutely. And West, we'll talk about West in a little bit, I imagine, but West goes along a very similar route and picking the aesthetic issues as one branch of his genealogy and the rational issues, the classification issues as the other branch of his genealogy as a way of articulating this double consciousness. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I wondered about was just the way in which it, this double consciousness is also an affliction and how that figures into the existentialist claim about it. I don't think it's just the fact of a double consciousness that's necessarily an affliction, right? Because we all make all sorts of different identifications at different levels. I'm an American, Mm -hmm. I'm a this, I'm a that. And it's really about the extent to which there's conflict between those things. And if my identity as an American is in conflict with my racial identity, not even just in conflict, but if the history of my country and the culture involves the degradation of my race then I think that that's definitely a kind of affliction. So I don't know if the goals, you know, because I was looking at the end of the essay and trying to figure out exactly what the goal is, but I don't know if it's necessarily to get rid of the double consciousness. It's to develop this sort of harmony between those different identifications, let's say. Yeah, I would agree. Really? Develop a harmony? Well, look at page 14, let's say, because that's where he's talked about the different ideals, physical freedom, political power, education, all those things. Well, I had a quote. It's just at the third of the last paragraph at the end. He says, work, culture, liberty, all these we need, not singly, but together, not successively, but together. 
each growing and aiding each. And he goes on at the end, he says, in order that someday on American soil, two world races may give each other to each those characteristics both so sadly lacks. Yeah. I mean, in that statement is a kind of notion that maybe not harmony, but certainly not exactly integration. Well, let me read another quote as well, just to supplement that on page 13. The ideal of fostering and developing the traits and talents of the Negro, not in opposition to or in contempt for other races, but rather in large conformity to the greater ideals of the American Republic, Mm -hmm. in order that someday on an American soil... Okay, did you just read that same... uh... (laughs) except i started a little earlier sorry (laughs) it was on Uh, a different page uh, than yours was apparently but hmm. yeah so i'm thinking of this conformity to the greater ideals of the american republic did anybody else when they were reading that hear like the echoes of hegel talking about this construction of consciousness through the eyes of others yeah absolutely that's what echoed to me so we all have selves that are built in this way the difference is that for him, the people who are define his identity hate him, yeah. you know, or hate yeah. his race. Whereas in a healthier situation, so that's a lot of what the Franz Fanon is, the psychotherapist, right. is describing with pathology. He was in uh, Northern Africa, but had been a place that was colonized by the French right. and thought that the blacks he was dealing with, and including himself, had serious sort of inferiority complex because what culture meant in his time was white culture. Mm-hmm. And so it's just this self-loathing. You don't build an appropriate sense of self. So you end up seeing like in Cornell West, he has a whole books of practical recommendations to the black community of how to improve their lot. And a lot of it comes down to this building self-esteem, getting rid of these things that, I don't know, two privileged white kids when I was growing up. And now we're going to have a rally about self-esteem. Like, (laughs) really? And this is ridiculous. And maybe it is just kind of ridiculous. To legislate it, but there's a reason for it. And in some communities, certainly if you were, if the society or the history of the society has been beating you down and giving you this negative self-image from when you start, then it's certainly something that's sadly needed. No, I think you're absolutely right. Because, you know, one of the things that Cornell West says in Race Matters, and I believe he says it in the very first chapter of that book, Nihilism in the Black Community. One of the things he says is that, you know, on the one hand, we have to fight racism that is external to us. You know, we have to fight these institutions that try to subjugate us. But on the other hand, we have to, what he says in another place, you know, rehabilitate the black psyche. Or in other words, you know, to teach black people or to teach the black community that you are not inferior, that you are not inherently ugly. And so Cornel West, he sees the importance on both sides, both fighting racism that is external to the black community, but also fighting the racism that we have internalized. Yeah, and it's a precarious kind of fight, right? And that sort of gets at absolutely Martin Luther King's approach and, and also the Seth's mention of Hegel in the same way that if someone were to say, well, why make that identification with a, a culture that hates you? Or why not make the fight about ridding yourself of that identification? But there's really not a choice because you really, in the end, can't give up your Americanness, let's say, Many have tried. Oh, my. Many, many have absolutely tried. And you're getting right to the heart of it because that gives rise to nationalism on the one hand with Malcolm X and the Black Panthers. Mm. And then this idea of what I'll call integrationism. I'm not sure that they would like that, but integrationism with Martin Luther King Jr. and those kinds of guys, because you have this problem. What do we do? We are Africans who are in America. Okay. What do we do now? Well, on the one hand, you can say, well, let's go the Marcus Garvey route. Man, I'm dropping all kinds of names. I'm sorry. You can go the Marcus uh, (laughs) Garvey route and get on a ship and go back to Africa and try to do that at least. Or you can go the Martin Luther King route and try to integrate 
with what black nationalists see as their enemy. And so you have this tension where what do we do now? How should you respond whenever violence is inflicted upon you? Should you be nonviolent or should you have self-defense? All these issues begin to come up. Well, let's say a little bit about what is philosophical about it, maybe a little bit in constant distinction to what is political about it. I know that might True. be a kind of ham-fisted <laughs> distinction. No, no, I think, I think that's a fair. But, you know, part of it, thinking about the question of Hegel or even thinking about questions of identity and authenticity, right. which seem to resonate more directly philosophically. And there may be lots of practical concerns about how to render any of those issues in the real world. Mm -hmm. But I think both Du Bois and West are making claims, especially West, about the philosophical underpinnings of questions of identity and authenticity. Right. And I'd like to sort of push into that a little bit. One of the ways of the reactions that you presented, going with Garvey or going with King or going with Malcolm X, have to do with reactions to questions of resolving identity and living authentically in a world that doesn't embrace you on the average, that kind of thing. And those resonate in lots of different ways. You might choose to be part of a cloistered community. You might choose to be raging against the community, that kind of thing. Right. Seth, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how you were thinking of Hegel's... What tipped me was just when Wes talked about reconciliation, it seemed to me that what he was pointing at was the need to, I don't want to say dialectically transcend, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Kind of along the lines of what Mark was saying is that we all go through this process in developing the self-identity. There's just something particular to the experience that he was describing where he was trying to say we have to kind of push through because even in the Hegelian model, the dialectic between self and other is one of struggle. Mm -hmm. And right. so even Hegel's power structure, the metaphor that Hegel uses in the um, Lord and Bondsman mm -hmm. is one of servitude. And so the metaphor itself is kind of apt. But I thought what Du Bois was pointing at was that there seems to be something maybe even more extreme or more intense or somehow different in quality, maybe not different in kind relative to just the general struggle that Hegel's describing in the phenomenology of spirit. And critically with that struggle, you can't just kill off or cast off the other because your your existence is tied to the other. Right. So that's not a way out. And that's where I think, you know, you get the contrast between the Malcolm X approach or the Martin Luther King approach. I think Martin Luther King recognized that a simple wholesale rejection of one part of the double consciousness wasn't going to work. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very difficult when you feel the you know, if I can use these terms, when you feel the thesis and antithesis, right? When you feel those at war with one another and you feel it within yourselves, how do you reach that synthesis? How do you get there? And I think that's some of the issues that they're kind of dealing with. How do you do that? How do you get there? Now, I know as soon as we posted this topic, actually, I think I put it in terms of race and power or something. I didn't mention the African-American struggle in particular. Mm -hmm. And somebody responded like, talk about race in general. What are the other races? And it when you try to come up with a general concept of race, then things get very difficult, which is why I just decided, like, let's not do that at all. But there's there's something <laughs> to be said, you know, and Du Bois is thinking about this. I sent you guys a link to an essay by Anthony Appiah right. called The Uncompleted Argument, Du Bois and the Illusion of Race. Mm -hmm. 
So Du Bois is recommending that you somehow embrace blackness, that there's a peculiarly black character in America that has something to contribute to the culture. It shouldn't just be squashed in terms of whiteness, but at the same time, there's an ambition, there's something about white America that black folks have to learn as well. So that's where the cultural combination is going to come through. But he had a long career and some of the time had this very pan-African sentiment. Mm-hmm. And that brings the question like, well, what is the thing exactly? You could say we've got this shared history of oppression. Right. And certainly for his time, absolutely. There was nobody that was alive. This is like when slavery was like in the the memory of living people and things like there is just no question that everybody in that country had this shared background. I mean – a hundred years later or something, it's much more questionable. But even at the time, there was the question then, well, is the thing that he's recommending, you know, the soulfulness, the spiritual strivings that he's depicting that is supposed to enrich the American spirit or something, if integrated into the culture, if the culture has to, to learn from it, is that something peculiarly just this African-American experience or is it something having to do with a race, which means something more than just this group of people who are here at this particular time with these experiences? And this essay by Appiah sort of said that Du Bois really didn't have a good answer for that. He wanted to define it culturally, right? This is because of a shared experience. But I mean, if you think about, well, how do you determine that a people have had a shared experience? You have to determine already the identity of that people over time. And when it came to that, Du Bois just referred to skin color. And that's why he could be in favor of this pan-Africanism and because Africa, too, it also had this colonial history. So, you know, there's a lot of even just culturally... But beyond that, and so this is where it comes to today, that maybe some people with black skin today do not necessarily identify with any particular shared experience. They might have been raised in a perfectly affluent, you know, been completely divorced even from the relatively recent civil rights issues, Mm -hmm. let alone anything else. So that's where all these... Is Obama really black because he was born in Hawaii? His father was just straight from Africa. There's you know, no ties to sort of the African-American experience at all. Right. Do we have to even care about defining the term race? In some ways, that seems like kind of a pedantic philosopher bullshit thing. I did read that essay, and I was sort of glad that we were avoiding, for the most part, the whole question of, is there such a thing as race? Because I think to the extent that you're a skeptic about race, you're a skeptic about species, or you're a skeptic about any sort of classification. The skepticism rests on this claim that there aren't any Aristotelian essences and there aren't any hard and fast distinctions that allow us to say that there is this firm ontological category race. But we can do that with lions and tigers, and we can even do that further with chairs and tables. Mm-hmm. But for all practical purposes, there are lions and tigers and chairs and tables, and there are distinct races. I think the more important question of what then whether or not there is some ontological level, whether a metaphysical level really races, is that there's a distinction between certain physiological characteristics like skin color and hair, let's say, and then cultural distinctions. And that when oh, we yeah, talk about absolutely. race, often yeah, we're talking point. about both things and we're using the physical characteristics as a marker for cultural characteristics and then of course cultures aren't hard and fast either they merge at the boundaries and they share lots of things so it becomes a very complex question but i think the important part there is that when we talk about race we're often talking about really about two things we're talking about culture and then physical characteristics i'm very happy to hear you say that because i'm seeing a lot of literature that's just digging into this question of, is there really a valid biological category called race? And I don't think that's the issue at all. I don't think that's even remotely important necessarily. We are where we are. How do we make sense of where we are now as opposed to taking a step back and asking these biological questions? I think you're absolutely right. 
I think West would probably agree with that. But West, in his genealogy, makes a spirited argument that this category of race is a product of the scientific revolution. Mm -hmm. He would say that. You're right. And that it's a fundamentally Cartesian act, and that it may be that we revise that part of the scientific revolution, but that it is a category of its own that comes out of the classification activity of modern science, period. And it's that activity and the sort of obsession with species or obsessions with kinds, which, you know, I think in the end, there's a long story to be told about that metaphysical disposition in Descartes. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.